what I find for the vast majority of my patients is that they t- seem to do the best on like a paleo type diet. Sometimes, you know, it, it'll be more in the keto realm of things. It really just depends on the patient. I find one of the big predictors of that is what a patient's kind of innate body composition is like. You know, if there's a person who's kind of rail thin, they have a hard time putting on weight, you know, I, I would be very, very cautious about putting them on a, you know, keto diet or even like a lower carb diet because just they lose weight too easily. Whereas someone who's, you know, just naturally, um, you know, carries more body weight more easily than they might do really well, like with, you know, intermittent fasting and, you know, really low carb and that, that type of thing. So it really, it really varies. Hey there, I'm so excited that we get to chat about mitochondria today and really the root causes under why you don't feel like you have enough energy. Maybe you're dealing with a lot of brain fog, dizziness upon standing, afternoon headaches, migraines, blood sugar issues, breathing issues, low body temperature, being intolerant to heat if you like get outside and you're just like so uncomfortable when it's hot out, chronic inflammation, not being able to fall asleep, can't stay asleep, loss of libido, weight gain when you're under stress, uh, waking up tired, even if you've had more than six or seven hours of sleep. All of these signs are big clues that your mitochondria might not be operating well. So today we're going to talk about mitochondria, what it's doing, why it's doing it, and the root causes so that you can start to work through what's going on with these symptoms. Before we get into more conversations about mitochondria, I want to remind you of my cyber sale that's going on for another couple of days. It ends December 1st. So if you're looking for more support on your ketogenic diet or even more support with root causes, If you've determined that you got to detox metals, mold, and these sorts of things we're talking about a little bit today anyway, you can go to healthfulpursuit.com. That's my website. Once you're on that website, you're going to click on the top little icon that says shop, and you can use the code CYBER, all in caps, for 40% off all of my keto digital products. That includes six-week keto weight loss, my 12-week happy keto body comprehensive program, Keto Bundle, Keto Holiday Cookbook, Balanced Keto Meal Plans, all of it 40% off. Also, I'm offering my blood work course for $100 off and my Root Cause Group, which is a nine-month comprehensive program that takes you through opening drainage, killing parasites, detoxing metals, and mold. And last but certainly not least, chemicals, viruses, and bacteria. I'm offering that one for a dollar for your first month and then $49 every month following. So again, that's healthfulpursuit.com. Click on the shop button at the top in the green banner. And if you have any questions, you can reach out on those pages to get in contact with me if you're just not sure which product would be best for you. Okay, mitochondria. It's a big topic. I wanted to have my friend, Dr. Brian Raid, on the show. He is brilliant. There are very few individuals that I've met with as many trainings as Dr. Brian. And he is so passionate about helping individuals, helping his clients, and just providing solid descriptions of individuals, what they're struggling with. He does live episodes and Q&A episodes on his Instagram, which I really, really love. And I watch myself personally. His Instagram is dr.brianraid.nd. So I highly recommend you check him out. I'm going to include links in the show notes for you. So if you're just not sure how to spell his name and all those things, you can check it out. 
He's a graduate of the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine and also completed studies in the pre-medical and biological sciences at the University of Western Ontario. The list of his education is exhaustive. If you go to his website, you'll just be like, when is it going to end? There's so many things like IV therapy, integrative cancer treatment. He's a member of the Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians. He's familiar with PANS and PANDAS and ozone therapy and advanced pain treatment techniques like The list goes on and on and on. Mast cell syndrome, low-dose immunotherapy, low-dose allergen therapy, like so many things. So he is a wealth of knowledge. And today we wanted to talk about one of the things that he loves talking about most, which is mitochondria. So at the beginning of this episode, I listed some of the common signs that I see in my practice that link to mitochondrial dysfunction. I would say probably 90 to 95% of the clients who come to me have a mitochondrial issue. And so mitochondria really, 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 really has to take center stage in supporting the body because mitochondria have roles in hormone dysregulation, energy dysregulation, and they're involved in chronic illness. So these three issues are like the core issues that most of us deal with. Now, later in the episode, I did share that I was taking different supplements and different protocols for my mitochondria. And so I don't list what those are in the episode. And I'm sure there's going to be somebody, maybe that'll be you when you're listening to the episode, you're like, Leanne, Leanne, but what are you doing? What are you taking? So for my mitochondria, I found what works super good to the point where I don't have any mitochondrial symptoms, like everything I listed I'm pretty good on all of those pieces. One is Timeline Nutrition's MitoPure. I've talked about them on the podcast in the past. I love this supplement. The only thing is that it is so potent. I can't take a lot of it because it's just too much. So MitoPure is the one that I use. You can get more details by going to TimelineNutrition.com slash KDP. And then the other one that I have just recently started about three months ago maybe a little bit longer at this point, is NAD patches. Holy moly, this stuff has like supercharged my recovery, especially. So if you want to learn more about this, I do share it a bunch on Instagram with details around how it works and why. So if you go to my Instagram at Leanne Vogel, and then on my Instagram page, you're going to see a little highlight and it's going to be called recovery. So click on that. And I've created a little series that takes you through what NAD is, why the patches, how I use and gives you a $100 off coupon, which is crazy awesome. Okay, so those are the two that I use. And I just wanted to highlight that at the front of this episode, because I thought when you get to that part, you're going to be frustrated that I didn't share it at the time of the episode. So let's just dive in with our interview with Dr. Brian Raid. I hope you love it as much as I did. Hey, my name is Leanne Vogel. I'm fascinated with helping women navigate how to eat, move, and care for their bodies using a low-carb diet. I'm a small-town holistic nutritionist turned three-time international best-selling author turned functional medicine practitioner, offering telemedicine services around the globe to women looking to better their health and stop second-guessing themselves. I'm here to teach you how to wade through the wellness noise to get to the good stuff that'll help you achieve your goals. We're supporting your low-carb life beyond the if-it-fits-your-macros conversation. 
hormones, emotions, relationship to your body, workouts, letdowns, motivation, blood work, detoxing, metabolism. I'm providing the tools to put your motivation into action. Think of it like quality time with your bestie mixed with a little med school so you're empowered at your next doctor visit. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while you learn about your body and how to care for it better. This is the Keto Diet Podcast. Hey, Dr. Brian, how's it going? It's going well, Leanne. How are you doing today? I'm so good. I'm so good. Two Canadians here chatting about health. I'm so excited to dive in. You interviewed me on your podcast, and I so enjoyed our conversation. I'm so honored for you to come on my show and chat about what we're going to chat about, holistic health, mitochondria, root cause. I'm really stoked. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited too. Awesome. So I know I just read your official bio and I introduced you to our community, but in a couple of words, can you tell us who you are, what you do and what lights you up every day? Sure. I'd be happy to. Yeah. So my name is Dr. Ryan Raid. I'm a naturopathic doctor here in beautiful Halifax, Nova Scotia, pretty much the easternmost part of Canada, give or take Newfoundland. But you know, that's well, anyways, they're, they're just a unique set of folks out there. Anyways, any Canadians listening, will we'll, we'll uh, get the reference there. And yeah, basically my practice over time has evolved into mostly working with folks who are suffering from complex chronic illnesses. So folks who have labels like chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, different autoimmune conditions, neurological disorders like MS or Parkinson's, or sometimes just, you know, we don't really know what's going on with you, but it's like, you know, something going on, not going well with your neurological system. And then a lot of those folks uh, that I work with, they wind up when we do some exploration, turns out that they have chronic infections with say, you know, Lyme disease or co-infections, chronic viral infections, SIBO, mast cell activation syndrome, various things like that. Worked with a lot of kids on the spe- the autism spectrum over the course of time. I also treat a fair number of oncology patients as well which is kind of just a separate kettle of fish in and of itself. Um, and then I also treat a lot of chronic pain. I do a lot of orthopedic injections like ozone therapy injections, platelet-rich plasma injections, neurotherapy injections. So uh, enjoy being a very diverse clinician. When a patient comes in and says, I've got X, Y, or Z issue. And before, if like, ah, I don't know how to help you. It's like, I'm going to go do the training to try to figure out how to help you. So I've kind of been addicted to continuing education for my whole 14 years of practice. And uh, so I guess what lights me up is, I mean, there's lots of things in my life that light me up outside of the clinic as well, like my wife and kids and hobbies and things like that. But in practice, just, yeah, practicing. I'm always looking at new things, learning new things. So every day is an exciting adventure in at uh, East Coast Naturopathic Clinic, at, which is my clinic. Wow. I mean, I checked out your bio on your website before our conversation, and I had to keep scrolling through all of the courses you've taken. Like I've interviewed over 500 people on this show, and I don't think I've ever seen all of this listed. Like there's a lot of things. I was blown away how much you know, and there's a unique thing to that because most practitioners kind of, I was just having a conversation with a client about this the other day is most of us just kind of stick to one thing. So you're seeing one practitioner for gut and then you're seeing another practitioner for your minerals and then another practitioner for metals. And it is, it is is so cumbersome and such a burden to try to maintain all that yourself as a client. I really love that when people walk into your clinic, you're like, I can help you to the best of my ability because I know a lot. And it sounds like you like to know all these different things to help people because each individual is unique. I'm sure you're using different tools on 
every single person. Is that kind of how you approach things? Yes. Yeah. There's a very deep tool bag. And yeah, of course, we don't use everything on everyone because that would take years, I think. But yeah, it's really nice to have a lot of treatment methods, a lot of different supplements, a lot of different testing options like lab testing and whatnot. So there's all these things to draw from and just trying to, the art form is really just trying to find the right blend for the patients in question. So yep, it's a good way to put it. I like that. The right blend. That's amazing. And also I've noticed on your Instagram, you do like an ask the doctor sort of, it's like a Q and a, I really enjoy those. So if anyone's listening that just wants to kind of get an introduction to some of the things you do, I've really enjoyed listening to those. And you can hear just by you speaking that, you know, a lot of things about a lot of things. <laughs> so <laughs> it's great. It's great. So today we want to kind of dive into mitochondria, and I'm sure this will become a diverse conversation because there's so many avenues that affect the mitochondria, but I'd love to just start with the basics of like, what are mitochondria and why are they referred to as the powerhouse of our cells, which we all remember from like grade seven science, but what are they and why are they referred to the powerhouse? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, calling them the powerhouse of the cell, like it, it is a fairer name because they do produce virtually all of the energy for our cells. They produce, to my understanding, about 90% of all the energy that our cells wind up producing. And so, and that's, that's a big deal. We need energy to run everything in our bodies. There's, there's certain reactions that do happen passively without the input of additional energy, but virtually everything that we take for granted day to day, whether it's hormone secretion, whether it's moving our bodies around, whether it's thinking, you know, firing nervous system signals in our synapses, like everything requires energy. And so those powerhouses are crucially important. I presented at a conference a couple of years ago, and I, I can't remember the exact name or title of my talk, but it was something like, you know, mitochondrial dysfunction, like i.e. mitochondria not working properly, the underlying cause of all disease or something like that. And I, I made, I thought a pretty good case for mitochondrial dysfunction really underlying virtually any chronic health pathology you can possibly think of that ranges from cancer to autoimmune disease to you know, fatigue issues, etc. You know, you break your arm, probably can't blame that on dysfunctional mitochondria, but your rate of healing that broken arm is going to be very much dependent on your mitochondrial function. So the powerhouses of the cell, they're really important. And really their main job is to, well, one of their main jobs is to make virtually all of the energy for the cells. They do have other roles as well really important roles in terms of signaling like when it's time for a cell to die. And while that might seem like kind of the opposite of like, oh, you're making all this energy to run this body, you know, why do we bring death into the picture here? Well, that's really important because if you don't want to get that condition called cancer, you know, you want to make sure that when your cells get to the point where like they just can't, you know, make ends meet anymore, they're no longer a, a functional viable cell. You want that cell to be killed off and recycled because you don't want it to turn into a rogue cell and, and turn into cancer cells. So there are several other functions that the mitochondria have as well, and more and more is being learned about them all the time. But you know, one of the most relevant functions for probably most folks listening is like they make virtually all of the energy for the cell. The one little thing I'll just mention here is when kind of going back to you know grade seven science class or, or whatever it was when you first heard about the mitochondria in, in your life, they will oftentimes depict the inside of a cell as having like, oh, here's the nucleus, here's the nucleolus, here are the ribosomes, here's the endoplasmic reticulum, here's the mitochondria. And it's like, it's just one mitochondria. It's like the cells have at the very least thousands of mitochondria per cell. There are certain specialized neurons in the brain that literally have a couple million mitochondria per cell. So a better analogy would be more like, and of course, it's going to be hard to draw all those mitochondria in you know the science textbook. So you know, no, no, uh, 
no shame on you know the folks drawing those pictures but it's really more like if you picture a watermelon that just had like you know thousands of little seeds in it like and the the watermelons the cell that's kind of what you're looking at in terms of the mitochondria there's tons of them because they're crucially crucially important that's incredible. It's actually really hard to find watermelons with seeds now, and they're so incredibly good for you. This is like a whole other thing. There but we go. Yep. I get what you're saying. So would it be bold to say that at the heart of most chronic issues, mitochondria are involved or need to be involved in a better capacity? I think it's bold and correct, because that's basically what my lecture was about at that conference a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's hard to name a health issue that like, you know, isn't an acute injury that doesn't have mitochondrial dysfunction as a key, like an underlying key component of that pathophysiology, or that it's not like a really important side part of that pathophysiology. Okay, so this is probably a loaded question, and we're going to kind of delve deeper in over time. But what's going wrong with these mitochondria? Like, why are they imbalanced? Overall, it's probably a loaded question. <laughs> Well, it's a good question, and I can take a stab at it if you'd like. But if you want to refine it, I'm let's do it. I'm easy. Okay, all right, I'll give it a try. So the way I describe it to my because my patients ask this all the time, it's like, okay, you keep talking about mitochondria, like, what's the deal here? So what, what can go wrong with them? So from to my understanding, and there's basically three main things that the mitochondria need in order to function properly. And if any or all of those are off kilter, you're going to have dysfunctional mitochondria that aren't aren't working properly. So again, there's three categories. So the first category, not that they're in order of importance or anything, but just the, the first category I'll mention is that mitochondria need certain nutritional cofactors to work properly. So the mitochondria need virtually all of the B vitamins to work properly. You know, um, anyone listening who's heard like, oh yeah, like, you know, B complex for energy or B12 for energy. Well, the way that those have an impact on energy levels is because they're crucially important for mitochondrial function. Now, some folks, and I've had many of them in my practice, they'll come and saying, yeah, I took that bottle of B12 and it just didn't do a blessed thing for my energy. Yeah, well, if you're not low in it, then, you know, it's not going to make you feel better to take it as a supplement. But to make energy in our mitochondria, we need virtually all the B vitamins. We need a lot of different minerals, magnesium being a really important one, calcium being a really important one, iron being a really important one. You know, iron's important, not just because... It makes up the core of hemoglobin, which is, of course, part of our red blood cells that transports oxygen to our cells. And oxygen is arguably the most important thing that our bodies need to make energy in the mitochondria. There's a little test that a person can do. And of course, I'm not giving any medical advice here. And this is just like a joke, but not really a joke. If you plug your nose and cover your mouth, you know, see how you're feeling after about two minutes. You know, unless you're into like Wim Hof breathing, you know, you can do that for maybe 10 minutes. But at a certain point, plugging your nose, covering your mouth, you're going to run into some problems because you need that oxygen as a steady supply to run this, you know, trillion cells, trillion plus cells, you know, human body that you have. So oxygen, very, very important. Certain trace minerals are really important as well, like manganese. Selenium, very important for the mitochondria. And then certain amino acids are important. I mean, amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein molecules, they're crucially important for every system in the body because they make up all of our proteins and proteins are really the you know, structural, functional aspect of our physiology at large. Incredibly, incredibly important. Preaching to the converted here with your listeners, as you uh, mentioned earlier, a lot of you know keto, you know carnivore, high, higher protein folks out there, which is I think very good. But there's certain amino acids that are extra important for the mitochondria, like carnitine, like taurine, like proline. So there's certain kind of like extra emphasized ones that are necessary for optimal mitochondrial function. So the nutritional component, if the mitochondria are missing, you know even one of those ingredients, then they're not going to be able to make energy properly. 
The second category is the mitochondria need to be told what to do. So they're incredibly important little organelles, as they're called, these little structures in the cell, but they don't know what to do on their own. They need to be told what to do. It'd be like having, you know, all these workers in an office building and they're like all ready to go, you know, earnest hard workers, but there's no managers to tell them what to do. I mean, some people working in office buildings might think that sounds great and maybe the building would work a lot better. But in this analogy, let's just assume you need those managers. And so the hormones are the managers of the mitochondria. They tell the mitochondria what to do. So you need your estrogen, your progesterone, your testosterone, your cortisol, your thyroid hormone. So again, folks listening are thinking like, well, yeah, thyroid's really important for energy. Like that, that drives energy. What, what are you talking about these mitochondria? Well, thyroid hormone works on our energy levels by basically telling the cell and the mitochondria within the cell to make more energy. Or if you're thinking like, no, no, the adrenal glands, like that's important for energy. Yeah, absolutely. Because cortisol and adrenaline, they tell the cells when to make more energy and where to make it through the mitochondria. So these hormones are your energy managers. I'm like, oh yeah, like my testosterone is low and I took testosterone, my energy is better. Yeah, because testosterone, again, tells the mitochondria when and where to make energy. So the hormones are really important to tell the mitochondria when and where to make energy. And then finally, the third thing that's required for mitochondria to work properly is for there not to be things to interfere with the mitochondrial function. So, you know, you take that office building and, you know, the managers are there and the workers are ready to go. They're healthy and like this, the office is doing great. But then if somebody, you know, sets off a bomb in the building or suddenly there's an infestation of termites or suddenly all the power goes out in the building, well, that office building is not going to function properly at all. And so kind of the bombs and the termites and the electricity being shut off in the mitochondria would be different toxic things. Basically think of any toxic thing you've ever heard of and it's bad for the mitochondria, whether it's toxic chemicals, whether it's, you know, glyphosate from Roundup or um, organophosphates or phthalates or, or PCBs or what have you where it's heavy metals like mercury and lead, these are really toxic to the mitochondria. Mold toxins are really toxic to the mitochondria. Chronic infections with, say, Epstein-Barr virus or other viruses, those shut down mitochondrial function. Chronic Lyme disease or other chronic bacterial infections or things like that, these co-infections of Lyme that they're called, those are going to shut down your mitochondria. And there are other factors, stress, actually excessive stress, unfortunately, that you know can really interfere with mitochondrial function. So there's a bunch of things that are essentially mitochondrial toxins or inhibitors that if they're present, they're going to interfere with that mitochondrial function. So ultimately you need the nutritional factors to be in play. You need to make sure the mitochondria are being told what to do by the hormones. And then you need to make sure you're not full of toxins or other nefarious things to interfere with the mitochondria function. So if you have all of those things in place, then you have beautifully functioning mitochondria. If one or more of those things are off kilter, then you're gonna start running into mitochondrial dysfunction. You nailed that answer. I feel like you've told clients this a couple of times. It's not my first rodeo. <laughs> I like it. So which came first? If, if I'm listening to this conversation, it sounds like, okay, I know I need nutrients. I know that these mitochondria need to be told what to do. I understand that if there's interference, like mold, infections, Lyme, those sorts of things, it'll make the mitochondria go sideways. Is it that the mitochondria are being affected by these things or... Like in the case of, let's say, mold illness, if somebody starts living in a water-damaged building, their mitochondrial function gets worse and worse and worse. Is it that you need to apply both coaching up the mitochondria while also detoxing the mold? Or is it enough to just keep supporting the mitochondria? Or is it enough to just focus on the mold? Or do you need to focus on both? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a good question. So it, it really depends on the person. You know, there's some folks where you just, you know, say they've got, you know, a mold toxicity issue. And let's say they, you know, there was water damage in their home, there's some mold overgrowth, they get that remediated, but they don't feel 100%, you know, in a, you know, a couple of weeks, a month or something, like, ah, I still feel sick, you know, so we're, we've got them on, say, an anti-mold nasal spray, we've got them on a binder, like, 
you know, activate a charcoal or something like that. We've got them on some glutathione to support their phase two detox pathways. We maybe have them on some cofactors for their phase one, phase two, um, you know, pathways in the liver. And, you know, they're feeling fantastic on that protocol. And that, that happens sometimes. And then sometimes we have them on a protocol like that. So we're, we're helping to like flush out any residual mycotoxins or say there was some mold colonization of the sinuses, you know, we're treating that. But then they're like, yeah, I'm feeling better, but I'm only like 50% better. I'm only 70, 20% better. I've hit a plateau. Well, then in a lot of those cases, once we bring mitochondrial support into the mix, like the, the nutrients and those supportive things, then, oh, now I'm, you know, 80% better, 90% better. Or sometimes it's, okay, 20% better with the mold protocol. Now I'm 50% better with the mitochondrial support nutrients. And then now that we've got my hormones figured out, you know, now I'm like 90, 95% better. So um, every case is different. And, you know, thankfully there are clinical clues that we can look for to kind of know where to guide things. Because going back to that, you know, little soliloquy I've had there about like, you know, what are all the things that can go wrong with the mitochondria? It's like, man, to get every nutrient in there as a supplement, to test every hormone, to then try to you know, rebalance every hormone, to test for every possible mitochondrial toxin, like, man, oh man, that can get really expensive, really cumbersome. So thankfully there are clinical clues that can kind of point us in the direction of like, what should we be testing? What should we be working on? And trying to figure out where to go first. And then if there's a plateau, you know, where do we go second? Where do we go third? So it really varies from person to person. So I met this team of people many years ago. It was probably 2014, 15 or so at a conference. And they said, we are making these paleo sticks. They are different than any other meat stick on the market because they are fermented and each stick contains 1 billion CFUs of probiotics. At the time, I was living in Canada and I could not get these sticks. I remember Kevin and I loading up our RV and driving to Montana to drive to the owner's parents' house to pick up these sticks. Now, fast forward a whole bunch of years, and these are now the Paleo Valley grass-fed beef sticks. They are my favorite snack. They have been for almost 10 years. I always, always have one in my purse, sometimes two. They are my go-to snack. They're healthful for the gut. They strengthen your immune system. They're gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, GMO-free, freaky chemical, additive dye, preservative-free. Many of the flavors are 100% free of carbohydrates. And the best part, they are absolutely delicious. I am so happy that I took a chance, loaded up my RV, and <laughs> grabbed those sticks. It was like a really long trip. I think it was something like 12 hours of driving to get these things. And I'll never forget the first time I had a whole bag to myself. The flavor is unchanged. The product quality unchanged over all these years. I love my Paleo Valley grass-fed meat sticks. You can head on over to paleovalley.com slash keto and get 15% off your order of their meat sticks. Again, that's paleovalley.com slash keto. Yes. I think too, when it comes to mitochondria, like upregulation, I know that when I started detoxing mold and my mitochondria were getting better and better, I dealt with a lot of anxiety. It was a really interesting time. It lasted probably a couple of weeks through detoxification. It wasn't similar. It was similar to a Herx, but not a Herx. It's almost like that upregulation I wasn't used to and I was getting this energy and it kind of like felt unsettling. Have you seen that in your own practice? I know I've seen that with a couple of clients specifically when it's paired with like pots 
and a couple of other like neuro issues that when they start to feel upregulated, it's almost unsettling for people. Yeah, I, I have seen that in a couple of patients. And and sometimes it's like, yep, yeah, they're just like, oh, if my body has more energy and it doesn't really know what to do with it. And then sometimes it can be related to like, I kind of frame it in my mind at least as kind of like almost like an emotional detox a little bit where it's like, oh, like I'm, I'm getting my life back, you know, like, oh, I, I'm not stuck in bed all day. And like, there can just be a big emotional shifting that happens with that as well. So yeah, I've seen the uh, anxiety, if you will, like as a person's getting better for, for different reasons. But yeah, sometimes for this, the energy boosting reasons. Yes, completely. And you're just not really sure what's happening and it's kind of unsettling. So when we look at hormones, I'd love to kind of dive a little bit deeper into that because you said that if I remember correctly, the hormones are really the guys that are saying to the mitochondria what they're needing to do. And they're really organizing things and telling them what to do. Now, in the case of oh my goodness, every chronic illness, our hormones are going to like a light switch, just a lot of them are going to drop down DHEA, testosterone, estrogen, depending on the individual. And a lot of these times, individuals that are chronically ill will go for bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, whether on estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, and they're trying to like fix this, but the levels are not moving. When that happens, are the mitochondria involved with this? Is there any tips that you can kind of speak through when it comes to hormone regulation while dealing with these chronic illnesses? Yes, I will give you an answer um, to that. Those are good, a few good questions tied in there. So one thing just as a, I think, interesting little tidbit and a bit of a backdrop to this as well is that all of our steroid hormones, so that would be all of our sex hormones, so testosterone, progesterone, estrogen, also cortisol, these are all steroid hormones, as, as they're called, just based on their structure, they're called steroid hormones, and they're all synthesized in the mitochondria. So it's kind of this interesting two-way street where, yes, the hormones are telling the mitochondria what to do, when to do it, but you also need mitochondrial function for them to be synthesized in the first place. So it's this yeah, interesting two-way street. And so I think that in some of those cases where a person's really chronically ill and their hormones just aren't, you know, getting on track, even though they may be working with the bioidentical hormones or working with maybe, you know, non-pharmaceutical interventions to help try to improve their hormone status, I think that part of the issue in some of those cases is that the mitochondria are just too beleaguered. They just can't work properly and they just can't synthesize enough their hormones. At the end of the day, yes, we can top up hormones with bioidentical hormones, but the body's really doing, you know, the, the lion's share of the work, especially when it comes to, say, adrenal hormones and thyroid hormone and things like that. So that, that's just the one important little backdrop, I think. As far as, you know, if a person's working with bioidentical hormones or some other intervention and is just not getting their hormone levels on track, what I find in a lot of those cases is that we just need to do more work to figure out what's actually interfering with that mitochondrial function in the first place. You know, you take a person who's mired in mold toxins, like mycotoxins, as they're called, you can try to hormone support them out the wazoo. It's just they're not going to get better like, until they get a, enough of the mycotoxins out of there. You don't have to be 100% free of mycotoxins for hormone therapy to start working, but you need to at least get rid of a, an appreciable amount. Or if they have a you know chronic infection that hasn't been identified or addressed, or quite frankly, if their nutrient levels are just too low, like hormones, they just they don't exist, they don't function um, in a vacuum. You know they're interplaying with all the other hormones. You need the mitochondrial component in there. You know being on track as well. So really, it's if the hormones aren't working, it's like well, what are we missing? That's either you know that's kind of upstream to the hormones being off kilter. Yes, I know I can speak to personal experience. I didn't know that I had mold illness for quite some time. And a doctor just kept putting me on more and more and more hormones. And then once I addressed the mold illness, all of a sudden I could get off the hormones because I didn't need them. And so it was really just like this make work project of constantly 
doing the hormone stuff. And no matter how much I took specifically progesterone, oh my goodness, it did nothing. And that it can be so frustrating. And I work with a lot of women who have gone on various hormone supports and they're like, the doctor said this would make a difference and it didn't make a difference. And so I really wanted to touch on that because I know that it's a pain point for a lot of women that spend a lot of money. Like these things are not cheap and they're told like, just do this for three months, your life will be different. And it works for a couple of weeks, you feel great. And then the body's like, no. (laughs) And so when it comes to hormones and nutrients and mitochondria, what sorts of diet because you talked a little bit about the nutrients and the B vitamins and the things that we need to support our mitochondria. What's sort of the diet that you would generally recommend for clients who are dealing with mitochondrial dysfunction issues? Yeah, it's a a great question. And I'll definitely get into some detail. But again, it's like, it really depends on the patient. You know, it's, there's not a one size fits all for everyone would be so easy. If that was the case, then I guess you could just like, you know, write a book and like, oh, yeah, just just do that diet. And you know, never need a clinician to give you advice on that. But yeah, it's, it's nuanced. So what I find for the vast majority of my patients is that they t- seem to do the best on like a paleo type diet. Sometimes, you know, it, it'll be more in the keto realm of things. It really just depends on the patient. I find one of the big predictors of that is what a patient's kind of innate body composition is like. You know, if there's a person who's kind of rail thin, they have a hard time putting on weight, you know, I, I would be very, very cautious about putting them on a, you know, keto diet or even like a lower carb diet because just they lose weight too easily. Whereas someone who's, you know, just naturally, um, you know, carries more body weight more easily than they might do really well, like you know, with, you know, intermittent fasting and, you know, really low carb and that, that type of thing. So it really, it really varies. I think the biggest things in terms of selecting the right type of diet are making sure that it's an anti-inflammatory diet. And quite frankly, like as long as you don't have the processed food in there, you're not consuming foods that you're sensitive to. So if you've got a gluten sensitivity, by by all means, don't eat gluten. You know, dairy sensitivity, don't eat dairy. Stay away from refined sugar, you know, high fructose corn syrup, all these, you know, not so good things that are so prevalent in our food supply. But I think an anti-inflammatory diet, so whether that's, you know, a low lectin diet, a carnivore diet, keto, modified keto, paleo, like, you know, anything, like as long as it's a, it's a healthy diet that's devoid of food sensitivities for that individual patient, I think that's kind of the sort of the benchmark that I would set. And then where it gets a little bit more complicated is that a lot of patients that I work with, they have some type of dysbiosis going on, like whether it's small intestine bacterial overgrowth, also known as SIBO, whether it's large intestine bacterial overgrowth, also known as LIBO, whether it's yeast overgrowth, it's just, yeah, sometimes we need, well, in those cases, we need to make sure that we're not feeding the microbes either. It's not just about what your cells can tolerate or what your cells want, but it's also about not feeding the critters that might be overgrowing as well. So um, although thankfully there's a lot of spillover in terms of, you know, a paleo diet or a keto diet being, you know, anti or a carnivore diet, like by golly, if, if that's not the perfect anti-SIBO diet, I don't know what is because for folks uh, who might not know, you know, one of the best treatments for small intestine bacterial overgrowth, according to the research literature, is something called the elemental diet. And the elemental diet is this diet you do for two or three weeks. It's basically these, it's a diet in quotes, really, because it's basically, it's powder that you mix with water and, and drink it back. And it's basically essentially pre-digested amino acids, sugars, fats, and then some vitamins and minerals. And the reason that it can work so well is because it really starves out the SIBO. There's no complex carbohydrates in there at all. Well, guess what else doesn't have any complex carbohydrates? A carnivore diet or you know, certainly a keto diet, depending on how you do it. So yeah, I think there, there's definitely some spillover there. But anyways, I think I'm going off on tangents now, so I'll, I'll stop talking. It brought a bunch of different questions in mind. What are your thoughts? Because there are individuals who love the keto diet, the carnivore diet, and they'll just say, I'm going to be on this diet for the rest of my life because whenever I do eat a plant, I get bloated. 
Do you feel like diet is the only solution forward or do you feel like it's a tool that you can use for a certain period of time to achieve a goal while you work on other things? Um, d- definitely the latter. Yeah. Yeah. When patients are, if when patients of mine are quote unquote stuck on a diet, like they just like, oh, I have to eat this way. And if I stray, then, you know, I'm, I start having symptoms coming back. I mean, there can be a period of time where like, let's say a person has a lot of digestive issues or just maybe mitochondrial dysfunction issues. Like they're really tired because they're just not absorbing their nutrients and they don't really have, you know, major digestive issues. But anyways, for one reason or another, if a person is suffering from or dealing with symptoms of poor absorption, then they may need a period of time where they're on the diet, like maybe a few months, maybe even six months where the gut just needs to heal up. So like, oh, I'm on this diet, I'm feeling so much better. And then, you know, I tried to come off the diet after two months and my symptoms came back. It's like, well, maybe we don't need to be too worried about that at this point. Maybe let's, you know, give it, you know, say three to six months in total. But if after that period of time, like, no, I still can't bring back like any veggies in, or if I eat any complex carbs, I flare like crazy. It's like, what are we missing here? You know, is there a SIBO thing that we haven't addressed? Is there some other type of dysbiosis going on? There's this condition that I've been picking up more and more in my practice and my residents, I have naturopathic residents here as well. They've been you know, picking them up in their cases as well of this condition called exocrine pancreatic insufficiency or EPI for short, where basically the pancreas just either isn't brewing enough digestive enzymes in the first place, or it's brewing enough enzymes, but those enzymes aren't getting released properly when the digestive signals or should be saying like, yes, release these into the small intestine now to digest the food. So there's going to be something going on in all likelihood if a person's like, yeah, I've been stuck on this diet for say three to six plus months and I just can't seem to get off of it. It's like, well, there's probably something that we're missing. It could also be, you know, kind of getting into the realm of like amygdala dysfunction and sort of like could be a non-physiological or non-physical cause for why a person might be kind of stuck on a certain diet as well. But that's anyways, that starts to get a little bit outside of my wheelhouse in terms of, you know, counseling people in that regard. But there's different uh, tools and, and methods out there that can help with that too. Yeah, you're really talking about the fear of XYZ. Like, I can't eat a carbohydrate because anytime I do, I feel terrible. And you're like, mm, is it in your like, are you is it in your mind is kind of what you're saying. So I understand that. And I've personally gone through that myself. And I know that we can really get ourselves stuck in these certain areas when it comes to diet. And something that's really helped me is understanding that diet is a tool for a certain period of time while I'm achieving a goal. Okay, so I started the ketogenic diet because I wanted my period back after a couple of years of really delving deep into that. I no longer had amenorrhea, so I don't think I necessarily need the ketogenic diet anymore. And so we can use these pieces and adjust as we need is really what I'm hearing you say as well. Another piece I want to touch on, you mentioned it just a bit ago, is the sensitivities piece. So I was diagnosed with gluten sensitivity many, many years ago, kind of on the fence of whether or not I'm celiac or not, but just never went through the testing. When the doctor told me I needed to stop eating gluten, I was like, okay, I don't know what gluten is, but like, I can totally stop. That's fine. And it was challenging for sure. I think there are a lot of individuals that don't understand what's happening in the body when we are continuing to eat the foods that we know we cannot have. Can we delve a little bit deeper into that and how it affects our health overall? Because I can't tell you how many people I connect with and they're like, I know I shouldn't be eating gluten. It came up on a sensitivity test or even in Diagnostic Solutions GI map, there's anticholidian IgA and that will tell you whether or not you're sensitive to gluten, at least while you're eating it and we can retest, blah, blah, blah. But what's happening in the body when we're continuing to eat the foods that we know we shouldn't be eating? Yeah, that's a good question. So just before I answer that question, Leanne, sorry, I just I have to say one thing to circling back to the amygdala dysfunction. In my own podcast, I've 
talked about this with a number of different guests and like we always clarify it's like it's not that it's in your head that you're reacting to these foods it's that this region in your brain called your limbic system which is like the emotional part of your brain due to like true blue physiological causes typically rooted in neuroinflammation ultimately kind of like upregulates the fastidiousness of that region of your brain and it's kind of like your brain becomes hypervigilant and so it's like ah like there's that carb like and then once your brain realizes, okay, you're eating that carb, then it just kind of triggers all these pro-inflammatory pathways and, and creates a bunch of symptoms. So it's very much like it's literally in your head because that's where your brain lives. And so your limbic system is literally in your head, but it's not like just all driven out of somebody's psychology. So I'm, I'm sure you're on the same page with that as well, Leanne, but I just wanted to clarify. Yes. Thank you so much for clarifying. Of course. Yeah, of course. My, my pleasure. So if a person's consuming a food that is really not good for them, uh, what, what can happen? So, I, I mean, I kind of make the differentiation of, you know, okay, a person, you know, says like, yeah, every time I eat gluten, I get a lot of abdominal pain or my joints start to hurt more or my eczema flares up or my energy's worse and my brain fog gets worse. But those patients, if they're continuing to eat that gluten on a regular basis, if it's like once in a while, like, ah, it's my kid's birthday party or like, ah, I was on a cruise and I just like let my hair down for a week and felt felt like garbage on the cruise, but the gluten was so good, you know, whatever it is, if it's like a time to time thing, like you got to live your life and make this cause benefit ratio. But if that person's like, no, like I'm just going to keep eating gluten, like on a, you know, daily basis, weekly basis, then to my understanding, that's going to create a lot of inflammation in their gut. When our guts get inflamed, it creates elevated levels of these things called inflammatory cytokines, which are basically these cell signaling molecules. And those cytokines get into the bloodstream and they go here, there, and everywhere in the body. That's why if a person says, you know, like I'm eating this gluten and like my joints hurt, like how does that happen? Like, are you sticking gluten inside your finger joints? Like, no, of course not. It's just creating these inflammatory signaling molecules to basically increase inflammation in other parts of your body. Everybody's kind of got their physiological Achilles heel. So for some folks, like, oh, I eat a food trigger and Maybe it just causes digestive issues for some people. It might, you know, cause brain fog too, or fatigue or joint pain or, or whatnot, like I mentioned earlier. So you're going to basically get this elevated inflammation in the body. And not only is that going to cause symptoms, but it's going to put a lot of extra strain on your systems. Your body's going to waste energy putting out those inflammatory fires. You're going to be burning through your cortisol, which is kind of like you're one of the natural fire extinguishers in the body. It's going to interfere with nutrient absorption because if your gut's inflamed, you're not going to absorb those B vitamins and minerals and trace minerals and amino acids as well that you need for your mitochondrial function, along with so many other different functions in the body. So continuing to consume a food that's causing obvious inflammatory symptoms can really have a lot of negative impacts. Where I would make the differentiation is, you know, say somebody did a food sensitivity test and the food sensitivity test came back saying like, you know, you're sensitive to like gluten and pineapple and avocados or something like that. And you're like, yeah, when I eat gluten, I feel bad. But when I eat avocados, like I just, I seem to feel fine. Like I, I never feel worse when I eat an avocado or I always feel fine when I eat pineapple food sensitivity tests are not perfect. They have a false positive and false negative rate, just like any test that's out there. And so if a patient comes in saying like, oh, I did this food sensitivity test and I've been, you know, just following it to the letter for years and years, I'm like, okay, well, if you are okay doing that, sure, fill your boots, just keep doing that. But if they're like, oh, like I really miss eating almonds, but it says I'm sensitive to almonds. Like, well, maybe just try eating some almonds and see how you do. And if like, oh, I feel okay, then, you know, maybe it was, you know, either false positive at that point in time, or it may be that they're, you know, say they had a bit of a leaky gut issue that's healed up. And then now they're not sensitive to the almonds anymore. If it's a sensitivity that's obvious based on symptoms from eating that food, probably best to keep that minimized as much as possible. And hopefully just temporarily, if the gut heals and everything, maybe the, it's not necessary long-term, but if it's just on paper saying that's a sensitivity, it's maybe a bit more debatable whether that needs to be really diligently avoided. Yes. 
I echo that completely. That's exactly the approach that I take also. I've got some thrilling news to share with you. The Buy Optimizer's Black Friday mega sale is in full swing. And guess what? It's not just a one-day thing. It's happening throughout the entire month of November. This mega deal is available only to my listeners, only with my code. Yep, you heard that right. It's our little secret. Now, you already know that I have an unwavering trust in bioptimizers. These guys are the real deal when it comes to improving digestion. And let's not forget their top of the line magnesium. It's truly the best on the market. Plus, they back up their products with a rock solid 365 day money back guarantee. No questions asked. Now is that time of year when you fill up your shopping carts and stock up on bioptimizers goodness. Trust me when I say this, you will not find a better Black Friday deal anywhere else, not even on the mighty Amazon. The biggest discount you can get and amazing gifts with purchase are available only on my page, buyoptimizers.com slash keto diet with the code keto diet one zero. We all have those never ending Black Friday wish lists, but this year I challenge you to put your health at the top of that list. Instead of those impulse purchases, let's focus on what really matters. So why wait? Choose your health over unnecessary things this Black Friday. Head on over to buyoptimizers.com slash keto diet and enter the code keto diet one zero at checkout. Remember it's buyoptimizers.com slash keto diet with the code keto diet one zero. Don't miss out on this mega deal for my listeners only. Now, because this is the Keto Diet Podcast, I would love to spend some time talking about how keto affects the mitochondria. Are there benefits? Are there drawbacks? What have you seen clinically when it comes to a ketogenic diet? Now, a ketogenic diet, it's like a pretty blanket statement. So if you want to kind of get into the nitty gritty of like carbohydrate amounts, those sorts of things, feel free. But what are we looking at when it comes to keto and mitochondria overall? So a lot of the patients that I've worked with who come in on a, you know, quote unquote keto diet, they're typically, you know, kind of keeping their net carb intake to like, you know, somewhere between maybe 20 to 50 grams a day, give or take, you know, maybe getting up to like 75 grams a day. So like not really getting into actual ketosis is just more like, you know, much lower carb diet. Certainly some patients come in and they're actually in ketosis to, to some extent, whether it's super mild where it's, you know, just detectable in the urine, or maybe it's enough where it's actually, you know, they're getting into a notable amount of ketones in their blood. So I guess in terms of differentiating those groups, um, I can't say that clinically I've seen a huge difference one way or the other in terms of like, oh, you know, people who are truly keto, like in, in ketosis do so much better than those who are just kind of, you know, approaching ketosis, shall we say. Like, as I was saying earlier, like the perfect diet really just depends on the person in question. So in some cases, like, oh, more carbs, I seem to do better with that with my energy. You know, sometimes lower carbs, it seems to be better. So that, that really varies quite a bit. What I can say just based on the research literature is that really in a deep dive into the mitochondrial research literature. And I put together a course that's for clinicians, not, not for the general public, but just kind of getting into the nitty gritty of, you know, mitochondrial dysfunction. And then I also have a course for, you know, the public at large, which has a mitochondrial dysfunction component in it too. But anyways, having, having got into the research literature, there are certainly studies indicating that when either humans or animals are put into ketosis, there are benefits to the mitochondria. Generally, it helps to increase um, autophagy um, and mitophagy, so kind of breaking down old cells, breaking down old mitochondria, which is good because you... Like, as mentioned earlier, you want to get rid of the stuff that's not really serving you anymore. And then it also does stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis. So it leads to the formation of more mitochondria. 
which is good at any phase in life, but especially once we start to get above the tender age of you know 50 or so, give or take, there is this trend where our mitochondrial density in our cells starts to trend downwards. And the further you get in age above 50, then the more your mitochondrial density goes down. Thankfully, there's a lot that we can do to mitigate that. And actually, in some cases, at certain phases of life, you know, reverse that, you know, building up more skeletal muscle, like basically making stronger muscles in the body through you know, resistance exercise of sorts helps to offset that. And healthy diet might help in that regard as well. Um, adequate protein intake, very important for that as well, to my understanding. But there are some studies showing that the ketogenic diet can lead to mitochondrial biogenesis. The challenge that I have with those studies, and maybe there are some new ones out there that I haven't seen, but when I you know, did a deep dive into this, the studies are generally not longer than like, you know, one to three months in length. And just because we see benefits in kind of the quote unquote short term doesn't mean that you're going to see those benefits, you know, month after month, year after year. Our bodies are very adaptable and that's good in many ways. You know, it's like, oh, like you suddenly have to live out in the desert or something like your body will develop or will adapt to that. You don't need as much water intake. You'll make more melanin in your skin, like all this good stuff. But it can also be a little bit disadvantageous when we're trying to biohack our way into better health in that it's like, oh, the keto diet was you know really, really helpful for me for a few months, let's say. But then like, I'm not feeling like quite as good on it or I'm not noticing quite as much benefit. It's like, well, it might be because your body's just adapted to that. You're not getting those like extra benefits anymore. So, I mean, I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, uh, Leanne, maybe at a, at a future time about like, you know, benefits of maybe cycling in and out of keto and whatnot. But, you know, we're talking about mitochondria here, but like maybe, maybe there's benefits to kind of keeping our bodies on our toes a little bit more with cycling into different diets and whatnot. But those are my thoughts on keto and mitochondria. Yeah, I love it. And as an aside, totally personal question. I am Canadian, as we talked about, and I would burn in the sun all of the time. But since being in the Bahamas over the last, I would say, year, so I've been here for about five years off and on, I do not burn. My skin is nice and brown and toasty, but that's the melanin change, right? Because you're adapting to your environment. That's my understanding of it. Yep. That's so cool. That is just so cool. My sister's pretty jealous every time she comes to visit. She's like, how are you just laying in the sun? I'm like, melanin, man. Okay, so you mentioned a little bit about muscles. Can we relate muscles and mitochondria and what's going on here? Do we need healthy mitochondria in order to gain muscle? Are there ways that we can support the mitochondria when we're working out to build those muscles? Like, what do we need to think about when it comes to gaining muscle? Because it sounds like super important, even from a mitochondrial standpoint. Yeah, I think it's a two-way street. I think if you have healthier mitochondria, you're going to probably put on muscle more easily and also maybe arguably, more importantly, minimize the chances of getting injured from exercising as well. If your muscles are able to recover efficiently, then probably lower chance of injuring oneself. And then the more muscle you have, then you, the more mitochondria you have. Muscles are incredibly dense in mitochondria. They're a huge reservoir for them in our bodies. And generally speaking, more mitochondria is a good thing. They've done a number of studies now looking at the impact or looking at what types of factors impact not only our lifespan, but also our health span. For folks listening, you know, lifespan, everybody knows what that is. You know, how long you're alive before you're not alive. Um, health span is how long are you alive before you're generally considered to no longer be a healthy person. So if you're having trouble getting around, you have a lot of, you know, chronic health pathologies or whatnot. And of course, some folks might have a period of time in their life where they are unhealthy and then they become healthy again. But generally, the ref reference to health span would be like how long before a person is diagnosed with 
cardiovascular disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, like, you know, sort of these, you know, conditions that are associated with advancing age in our society at large. So one of the biggest predictors of how you can extend your lifespan and health span, or I should say a, fe a feature of folks who have the longest health spans and lifespans are folks who have more muscle mass. So muscle with all the wonderful little mitochondria they contain, they have a direct impact on how long we live and how well we live, essentially. So I think it's a really, really important topic. As far as, you know, to what extent does mitochondrial support lead to an enhancement in muscle mass? To my understanding, there are certain things that are associated with enhancing muscle mass. Um, creatine as a supplement would be one of those. Um, certain amino acids, um, in particular leucine and other branched-chain amino acids, really important in that regard. Glutamine, which is another amino acid, can be helpful in that regard. I haven't seen any studies, unfortunately, that I just don't believe they've ever been done, not that so we just don't really know what the results would be if a study was done. I'm looking at, you know, say giving somebody really comprehensive mitochondrial support. So giving them, you know, all the B vitamins, making sure they're getting their amino acids, getting the minerals and trace minerals and all that good stuff. I've never seen a study like that. I can say anecdotally from my practice with the backdrop here being that there's a protocol that I've been working with for the past several years, and I call it a comprehensive mitochondrial support protocol. So there's a local company here in Nova Scotia that thankfully put together this product at my behest. I don't have any financial ties to the company. They're just a compounding supplement company. They'll make whatever formula you want you know, for clinicians. So they put this product together for me and it's a very well-priced product, thankfully. And it has everything in it that the mitochondria need. It's got all the you know robust doses of you know the B vitamins, the mineral trace minerals, amino acids, and certain key antioxidants. So I've been using this um, comprehensive mitochondrial support protocol for several years. And what I can say anecdotally as well, you know, the majority of my patients are dealing with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, and they probably at that point couldn't care less about, you know, having better muscle gains in the gym and whatnot. When those folks get healthy and we're like, hey, can you work on your muscles? You know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Or folks who come in saying, you know, I just want to, I'm healthy and I want to stay that way, or I'm just, you know, a little bit off kilter, I want to get healthier. When we're actually working with muscle enhancement, I can definitely say anecdotally that folks regularly report that their energy is better, their exercise performance is better, their recovery is better. Speaking from my own personal experience, you now I'm 40 years old. I'm, you know, training in kickboxing and Brazilian jiu-jitsu a few times a week. I lift weights a couple of times a week. I'm chasing my three kids around. I definitely feel better. And if I run out of my mito support, I'm like, ah, I just I keep forgetting to bring it home from work. Then I start to notice that I'm like, ah, like my energy is not quite as good. I don't have quite as much get up and go. So I, I do think that comprehensive mitochondrial support. I think if they did a study, I think it's very likely it would show better outcomes. But we don't have any published data on that to date. Yeah, fair enough. I agree with you. I absolutely feel it when I'm not supporting my mitochondria, for sure. I have some really key things. And I agree with you with the creatine, glutamine, and essential amino acids, especially. I've been really playing around with supplementing with essential amino acids versus branch chain aminos. And this is a game changer for protein synthesis. Like I am blown away with the supplementation for this piece and creatine. I think a lot of individuals think like, if I just take creatine, I'm going to grow muscles. No, you got to work for it. So <laughs> the creatine you take so that you can push harder so that you can gain the muscle mass, but the creatine's there, but you got to push hard. And then the glutamine, especially, I agree with you, especially if you're working out a lot, it can help with the gut function as well. So yeah, those three I think the last bit of our time, I would love to talk about more of the application, like you were talking about just previously, the supplement specifically and supporting nutrients. Are there other pieces that individuals should be thinking of when it comes to just 
overall mitochondrial support kind of, I know we've touched on a whole bunch of things here, there and everywhere, but just, I really like to like bring it all in a nice little package with a bow. Here are some things to think about if you're concerned about overall mitochondrial support and some things that you can do. Sure. Yeah. So one of the kind of glaring holes in the mitochondrial dysfunction world is that um, to my understanding, and I've really looked diligently, there is no research validated, definitively proven test for mitochondrial function. So you can't just, you know, go to your functional medicine doc and say like, you know, I want you to thoroughly evaluate my mitochondria. There are tests that measure certain aspects of the mitochondria. Like there's something called an organic acids test. There's a urine test that, you know, can look at different mitochondrial markers. There's a couple of other tests that are out there, but like there's not not one test that looks at every aspect of mitochondrial function because there's a lot of moving parts when it comes to the mitochondria. With that being said, there's a test that I you know, run on my patients all the time. It's really nice because it's actually one of the like only $0 tests out there. You know, most of the functional medicine tests, they can get pretty pricey. This one's $0, takes about two seconds to do it. And basically you just look in a mirror and you look at the person looking back at you and say, is that person tired or does that person have optimal energy? And if the person says, I don't have optimal energy, then that person has mitochondrial dysfunction. And that does sound really- I love that. That's great, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, what a great test. So quick, so simple, but it's, you know, all kidding aside, like it's true because your mitochondria make virtually all of the energy for your cells, you know, 90% of the energy. So if your energy is not optimal, you have mitochondrial dysfunction. It might just be minor. You might be like, oh, yeah, I'm just kind of run down. I'm not getting enough sleep. Like, okay, fair enough. Your mitochondria aren't having enough time to rehabilitate, recuperate with sleep, but that's kind of the really simple test. So if a person has any type of chronic illness label, like anything I mentioned earlier, like, you know, fibromyalgia, autoimmunity, chronic fatigue syndrome, Lyme disease, like chronic Lyme disease, mold toxicity, like there's definitely mitochondrial dysfunction afoot, like 100%. But for the average person who hopefully, you know, doesn't have any of those labels, if their energy is suboptimal, whatever that means to you, then there is an element of mitochondrial dysfunction. So in terms of, you know, what could a person do in their day-to-day -day lives, you know, I mean, of course, working with a clinician who can help with checking off those three boxes, you know, of making sure there's the right nutrients, hormonal support if needed, and getting rid of mitochondrial toxins or, or inhibitors, you know, certainly working with a clinician would be probably the most thorough way to get that figured out. But I think for the average person, uh, probably the best things that they can do is try to eat a healthy diet, you know, eat a diet that makes you feel good and kind of gives you the best energy. Because if you're like, oh yeah, when I cut out the gluten, my energy is better. Well, the gluten was clearly interfering with your mitochondrial function, not through some like weird magical, you know, mystical way, but like, oh, it was causing more inflammation. It was interfering with cellular function. I was wasting energy from my mitochondria to put out those fires. So, you know, eating a diet that makes you feel as good as possible, I think is, is really important. I think trying to get the exercise in there. So our mitochondria need to actually get the nutrients as well. So if it's not like, oh, I just, you know, eat the food and suddenly they magically transport it into the mitochondria. So making sure that you know, we're doing exercise that helps to enhance circulation. So whether that's like this or that type of cardio or this or that type of playing sports or something like that, maintaining, uh, achieving and maintaining a healthy amount of muscle mass, as, as mentioned, I think is really important. There's certain kind of the day-to-day -day things like vitamin D, which of course, you know, is a supplement that one can take, but, you know, especially if you're down in the Bahamas, you know, getting that outside, vitamin D is really important for mitochondrial function. It's kind of a day-to-day -day thing that folks can do. And I think just beyond that, if there's, if there are symptoms that a person's having that it's like, oh yeah, like I've just had eczema for 20 years, but it's not that bad. You know, it's just, I just deal with it. Or like I've had acne for this long, I just deal with it. Or yeah, I get like bloated every day, but like, it's not that bad. 
like those would all be kind of little things that are clues. You know, it's the way of, symptoms are the way that your body talks to you to say like, I'm not a hundred percent happy in here. And if you're dealing with that and you don't, it doesn't bother you that much. So be it, you know, that's everyone's personal choice, whether to deal with that. But if there are certain symptoms, even if it doesn't seem like it would be necessarily related to your mitochondria, it might very well be because again, <laughs> mitochondria underlie virtually every you know disease uh, that one can possibly name. So if there are some symptoms, again, like working with a clinician or saying like, oh yeah, I know that if I, I don't know, get enough sun exposure and avoid this or that food, my eczema clears up. It's like, that's probably going to be good for their mitochondria as well. Yes. What are your thoughts on sleep and optimizing the sleep piece too for overall mitochondrial support? Do you feel like that's important? And do you see that in your practice sometimes? I think it's really, really important. And patients, like I've had a number of patients over time where they come in, they're like, oh, like I must be full of heavy metals. I must be full of mold. I must be full of this or that because I'm just so tired all the time. And so we, you know, start doing the intake and it's like, well, you didn't really have any notable, like, you know, history of exposure to any of these things, but like, oh yeah, like, oh, and my sleep's been garbage for the last 35 years. It's like, well, you know, I'm not a rocket scientist, but you know, if you haven't been sleeping for 35 years and you're tired, like maybe we need to work on that. And of course, some of those cases have other things going on as well. Some of those other underlying more serious or notable, you know, sort of, uh, pathological features, but yeah, sleep is crucially important. And, you know, fortunately there are a lot of good tools out there that can help to improve sleep. Of course, sometimes it's related to stress levels or co-sleeping with kids or, you know, just maybe like ultramagnetic exposures or things like that for people who are sensitive to that. But there are certain supplements that can be really helpful, like, you know, melatonin at an appropriate dose. I really like this herbal blend called Relora, which is a combination of philodendron bark and magnolia bark. Like that can be really helpful liposomal GABA can be really helpful. Like there, it just really depends on what's going on with the person. There's not a one size fits all, but there's some really great supplemental adjuncts to help with sleep. I think it's super important. Yes, completely. I've always had pretty good sleep until I started wearing an aura ring. And then I realized there were some key things that I needed to work on. Um, the biggest change for my sleep, and now I pass out and then I wake up, like passed out and then I wake up. It's the best, is sleeping in a cool room. Like I was just sleeping in too hot of a space and it was very unsettling and I was very restless in my sleep. So I find a lot of people are just too hot. And I know for myself personally, that has made the biggest difference and very easy to achieve. And it's made a huge difference. So for those listening who maybe have like, you're not running your air conditioning or you don't have like the right blankets around you, it can really, really make a difference. I know that that personally is a total win. Dr. Brian, where can people find more from you, connect with you, your Instagram, your YouTube podcast, tell us all the places. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So yeah, I post videos, mostly Q&A type videos, as you mentioned earlier on Instagram. I post all the same content on all the different platforms. So uh, Instagram, YouTube, my Instagram, I think is, oh my gosh, I think it's dr.brianraid.nd, I think, uh, nd for naturopathic doctor. My YouTube channel is under a Halifax naturopathic doctor. And uh, then my website is um, eastcoastnaturopathic.com. And maybe you can include in the show notes if you don't mind, Leanne. I have a link where if folks uh, join my newsletter, they get the first two modules of my, I have a course called uh, Overcoming Chronic Illness. It's an eight module course. You get the first two modules for free if you sign up for my newsletter. And basically it goes through, this is for folks who are suffering from complex chronic illnesses, but there's a module on chronic infections, on you know histamine issues like mast cell activation syndrome, chronic digestive issues, mold illness, mitochondrial dysfunction, a bunch of, bunch of different topics there. So that's something people can access if they're so inclined. And then I do uh, consults with patients um, all around the world. So if folks want to work with me directly, you can just reach me through my website and I'm happy to chat. 
I will for sure add those links to the show notes so people can just click around and find them. And thanks again for coming on. This was such a blast. It's my pleasure, Leanne. Thanks for having me. Woo-wee. I hope you learned a whole bunch from today's episode. Again, you can connect with Dr. Brian Raid by going to Instagram, dr.brianraid.nd. His website is eastcoastnaturopathic.com. And I'm going to include the link that he mentions, the Overcoming Chronic Illness course, the two free modules. I'll include that in the show notes because it's long. It's like eastcoastnaturopathic.com slash Brian dash. It's just look for it in the show notes. And I'm also going to include the link for overcoming chronic illness course, the two free modules in the show notes, because the link is quite long. So check it out there. And I will see you back here for another episode of the keto diet podcast. Oh, and don't forget that cyber sale. It ends in just a couple of days. Healthfulpursuit.com. Check out the shop. Use the code cyber all in caps for 40% off four zero percent off. Okay, that's it for me. See you back here next week. Thanks for listening. Join us next Tuesday for another episode of the Keto Diet Podcast. Looking for more resources? Go to healthfulpursuit.com for keto meal plans, weight loss programs, low-carb recipes, and oodles of free resources to get you going. The Keto Diet Podcast, including show notes and links, provides information in respect to healthy living, recipes, nutrition, and diet, and is intended for informational purposes only. The information provided is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor is it to be construed as such. We cannot guarantee that the information provided on the Keto Diet Podcast reflects the most up-to-date medical research. Information is provided without any representation or warranties of any kind please consult a qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your health and nutrition program.